Well, good morning, everyone. I uh, appreciate uh, Jeff Lee uh, and the group uh, subbing in for Dave Dorse today. I'd uh, like to hear that mandolin. One of these days, they'll maybe sneak in a banjo. Who knows? <laughs> feel like uh, perhaps if you've uh, come here this morning, uh, either as a regular or maybe a visitor, first-time visitor, you've uh, come here perhaps expecting to hear Dr. Silvernail. Um, and uh, it's like, kind of like going to your favorite restaurant, uh, and your favorite dish is not on the menu that week. So you're going to have to try something else today. You, you got me. You know, with uh, sermons available on the internet and what have you, uh, it you can end up going back and listening to these things. And I, I was reminded this week of a, uh, a quote from Spurgeon who said, if some men were sentenced to hear their own sermons, it would be a righteous judgment on them. <laughs> and they would soon cry out with Cain, my punishment is more than I can bear. <laughs> well, I hope I don't have to go back and listen to mine. <laughs> Um, last week, uh, Dr. Dorst uh, was, was here, and as we read the scripture, he had a stand. Uh, not that I'm advocating we need to go to that every week, but I would like for us to do that again this week. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 17. You can read along in your Bible. I'll be reading from the ESV. This is the Word of God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into to nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations, an everlasting covenant to be between... Uh, to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give you to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. 
any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall no longer call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings and people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael may before you. And God said, But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and, shall, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him, an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall be father to twelve princes, and I shall make him into a great nation. I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and those born in his house, or bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. You may be seated. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the praise of my lips be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. This is um, the, uh, I think, the fourth time that uh, I've been able to preach before you. It's the first time in three years. Uh, and a lot has changed in those three years. Uh, there's more seats filled out. Uh, I have to deal with this thing. I don't know what that's, still not used to that, so I may pull my coat off and tear it off. I don't know what will happen. Um, but we come to Genesis 17. And I think it would be uh, good for us to step, take a step back for just a moment and review where Abraham has been in his face so far. Years ago, Dave Crenshaw, when teaching a uh, Sunday school class on Genesis, called Abraham a man of great faith and a man of little faith. Throughout the course of his life, he had highs, times of great faith where his trust in God was obvious, and he had lows where the times of his trust in God was not so obvious. And God reveals himself to Abraham, or I'll call him Abe or Abraham. We'll get to this name change thing in a minute. But he kind of comes and reveals himself to Abraham 25 cents at a time. 
He doesn't get the full revelation. We see him back in the land of Ur of the Chaldeas when God calls his father, Terah, to leave the land where he had been, the idol worshipers. And he moves to a place away uh, up the Mesopotamian. But Terah dies. And the next time that God speaks to Abram is in Genesis 12. And it would appear that Abram is 75 years old at the time of this uh, first revelation. And there's a promise made to Abram at that time about descendants, which was a funny thing because he had none. But God was promising Abram descendants and a land that the descendants would inhabit. In chapter 13, we see God speak to Abram again. Verses 15 and 16, after Lot separates from Abram, and again, God refers to the fact that Abram would have multitudinous offspring. That's a lot of them. But he doesn't have any then, and Abram's going to have to trust and believe God. After the battle with the kings that we've read about earlier, God appears to Abram again, 11 years later, at age 86. God appears to Abram. And God, he still doesn't have any children. And God says, I am your sword and your shield, Abram. And God, and Abram responds with some frustration. Yes, God, but I don't have any children. You've been talking about children all this time. Well, I don't have any children. And so there's a, uh, a frustration factor that takes place. Now, throughout our passage today, and indeed throughout uh, uh, the book of Genesis, there are aspects of covenant, and we're going to get hot and heavy into the covenant today. And as, a, uh, as most of you know, I am a lawyer. Covenants are contracts. It is a form of a contract. We also have these issues uh, in Genesis with uh, descendants and uh, the laws of heirs of descent upon what happens to property when people die. In the uh, 1500s, England passed what was called the Statute of Wills, and that's uh, created a lot of business for me. <laughs> but before then, in, in ancient times, there was no statute of wills. You couldn't leave your property to just anybody. The law gave a, a remedy for what happened when people died, and it set out. You couldn't vary from it. And when God was speaking with Abram in chapter 15, Abram was looking at who his heirs at law were and as one of his servants, probably his chief servant, a guy named Eleazar. And he's frustrated with the fact that that's who's going to inherit from him. 
But God promises him, no, Abram, descendants. They'll be your descendants, your children. Now, last week we read about how Abram went, around, went about to try to deal and solve that problem. We read about the Hagar episode. And uh, that happened apparently sometime not long after that appearance in Genesis 15. Today, we move one chapter ahead. But for Abram, it's 13 years. We've read this story or are familiar with this story, and we can anticipate what's going to happen. We know that there's going to be an Isaac. Abram didn't. He's been sailing along for 13 years with Ishmael and the family tensions that he brought. Abram was a wealthy man. He had possessions. He was not your average Semite. His relationship with God had been a series of ups and downs. Indeed, he'd been called out of and left idolatry. And there was a promised land there. But ownership was only to be realized by those who would follow after him. And, there, and those who would follow after him were his children. And there is a problem in chapter 13, or excuse me, chapter 15. But that brings us to his troubled family life. Now, in NASCAR parlance, for those of you who've seen Talladega Nights, Abraham had a smoking hot wife. Nice problem to have, right? No, it's for Abram, it was a problem. And Abram put her in a compromising position in Egypt and endangered the covenant line. The, the problem, of course, was that Sarah was barren. She had no children. And that was much more of an issue in that society than it is today especially in light of the promise of descendants to Abraham. Imagine the additional pressure and stress and the ultimate disappointment when the children didn't come. And so they came up with their own solution, right? Well, so they solved their problem, sort of. Abraham got his descendant, Ishmael. But questions about Ishmael's heritage lingered. Something was tainted about it all. Yes, Ishmael's name was in the family tree, but there was an asterisk beside it. Not quite totally legit. And oh, the price of peace 
in the family. A huge family rift that we read about last week. And we'll see when we get to Genesis 21 that there continues to be this tension between Sarah and Hagar, between Ishmael and Isaac who is to come. So Abraham lived out this 13 years of mediocrity. He was, it's long enough for Abraham to get used to the idea that Ishmael would be his heir. He seems to be fairly satisfied with it. It's long enough for Abraham to be spiritually asleep. Just like a lot of you at this point in the sermon. But on to the scene burst God. In chapter 17, 13 years later, Abraham's 99 years old. And that brings us to our text. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. You should no longer be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring, and after, and, and after throughout all your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So two chapters, 13 years, and one Ishmael later, God comes back. He's picking up right where he left off. He had started all this covenant business in chapter 13. God had done all the talking in chapter 13. Uh, 13. He acted out the covenant. God was the one who walked between the pieces of the, of the meat that had been sacrificed and killed. Abraham, well, he kind of half slept through it all. But now it's going to be Abraham's turn to act out this part of the covenant, as we shall see. The covenant and its basic level is an agreement between two parties. And as, again, as a lawyer, I do these covenants, or do contracts all the time. And like any good contract, the first thing you have to do is identify the parties. As Groucho Marx would say, the, covenant, the party of the first part is hereafter known as the party of the first part. And so God identifies the party, the first part, as Himself. But He does so with a name and in a way that had never been used theretofore. He calls Himself, as in the English translation, God Almighty. In Hebrew, that's El Shaddai. Some of you are familiar with, perhaps, with that term. And of course, in the Bible, Names always reveal and say something about character. So God, 
in essence, is summing up everything that has been known about him theretofore in this name. I am God Almighty. I'm covering it all. And so God names and renames the party of the second part. Abram, hereafter known as Abraham. Now, naming rights are something with which we are familiar. The party of the greater authority is in a position to do the naming. God in Genesis 2 delegated to Adam the authority and the right to name the animals. And in that, Adam was exercising some of his dominion and authority over the world and over creation. God uh, also named other parts of his creation. Now, some of you may be familiar, you've heard or on a radio or TV, an advertisement for this outfit that deems itself the International Star Registry. Anybody ever heard of that? And for $49.99, they will name a star after you. Somewhere out there, and they send you this chart and all this stuff about where it's at. And I think, who gave you the right to name the stars? Who are you, International Star Registry? God has already taken care of that. In Psalm 147, he says, God determines the number of the stars and he gives them all their names. God as creator names. And God is going to take it on himself. We as parents name our children. When people, when people get married, I know this is not going to be popular in our modern culture, but our, the, the custom that we have whereby a woman adopts the name of the husband comes from this concept of being under authority. She takes the name, she forfeits or relinquishes the name of her parents and takes on the name of the man under whom, under whose authority she now abides. We see this in the sports world. Modern day of sports arenas and stadiums have sell their naming rights. And so we have FedEx Field, right? You buy the right to name that, that field after yourself. Now for Abram, the, war, the name Abram meant exalted father. Now it's a little bit confusing and the, and the commentators don't quite agree here whether exalted father refers to the fact that he had an exalted father, Terah, or whether exalted father was something to describe Abram. If it was, that was pretty ironic. He had no children. 
By this time, he has Ishmael, but that whole episode, as we discuss, is already dubious. And it's certainly not a multitude. And that's where God comes in and says, you're no longer just plain old exalted father. You are the father of a multitude, Abraham. And so he adds a syllable to his name. Now, there is no dialogue in this appearance of God so far. It's all God's monologue. Do we get any response from Abram? Not verbally, but there is a nonverbal response. Verse 3, Abram fell on his face. It's been 13 years since God's last appearance, and now he's got plenty to say. He could have said a lot more. When God announces that I am God Almighty, in a presence like that, there is no place to hide. There is no opportunity to deny. There is no opportunity to, minif to minimize or obfuscate or to whine. God has come on the scene. And Abram's appropriate response is prostrate worship. To fall before him. We see this throughout the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is brought into the presence of God, a vision of, in the throne room of God, he falls before God and realizes, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We see this on the Mount of Transfiguration in the New Testament, where Jesus, where God appears in a voice audible, and Jesus is shining in His glory, and the disciples have to fall prostrate before His feet. We even see it in Revelation when the 24 elders are around the throne of God, bowing and worshiping before God. God commands Abram, walk before me and be blameless. Now I think they both know that Abraham's not going to be able to do this. Certainly not the blameless part. We've already seen that Abram didn't trust God in Egypt. We already see that Abram didn't trust God to provide a son through Sarah. And in some regards, this command is just a reminder to Abraham about how far fallen he is. In fact, isn't that a primary purpose of the law? It's a mirror to us. R.C. Sproul says, Scripture is a mirror of the soul's need for grace. And so Abram falls before God. Understand that God is not making Abraham's salvation conditional. He's not making the blessing 
conditional upon Abram's obedience. We were already taken care of that. Abram's already demonstrated his faith. He believed God in chapter 15, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abram's just not living his faith. And God, in essence, is picking him up and shaking him ever so gently out of his malaise, out of his 13 years of suburban life. Can't you see, Abram, I'm trying to bless you? God seems to be saying. God is demonstrating extraordinary grace to a sinful man. And he demonstrates extraordinary grace to us on a daily basis. Those of us who have been his enemies, those of us who are in our own spiritual malaise, it is, in essence, a call to repentance for Abram. God is not going to leave Abram on the floor, and he's not going to leave him in his sin either. When Jesus healed and forgave, it was not for the purpose of letting people go back to their old ways of life. The woman caught in adultery in John 8 was forgiven. And Jesus had this whole discussion and in some ways non-discussion with the Pharisees. And when they were all gone, Jesus says to the woman, go and sin no more. Zacchaeus, when he encountered, in, when he encountered Jesus, was a changed man. Jesus didn't even have to say anything to, at all to Zacchaeus. He said, come down, Let's go home. I'm going with you. And there was no just call to repentance, except Jesus' presence was the call to repentance. John the Baptist at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus at the beginning of his earthly ministry, all called sinners to repentance. The responsive reading that we read today, Peter at Pentecost preached a sermon, and at the end of which, they all responded, oh, wow, what do we do now? Repent, Peter says. Repent and be baptized. God does not leave us in our sin. God reiterates then that the promises are for Abraham and his descendants a possession of the land. In contract language, that's the clause that says, and this and the parties hereby agree that this shall be binding on their heirs and assigns forever. That's in the contract. God is graciously extending the terms of the contract for Abram. Now, in law school, they teach us in contracts class 101 that the first rule of contracts is get it in writing. 
if you want to hold the parties to the terms. The second rule of contracts was don't get it in writing if you want to weasel out. <laughs> so where's the writing here? Is it in writing? Well, it's better than that. It's in blood. God is going, God calls upon Abram to have a sign and a seal. It's better than that tattoo we had up there. More permanent. We need a sign indicating that an agreement has been reached. We need a sign for future generations that this is going to be binding on us, that I've made promises, that I am the God, I am God Almighty. And that sign was circumcision. According to commentary, circumcision was something that was known to the cultures of that day. God doesn't have to explain it. He doesn't say how to, have to, do, how to do it. But Abram willingly and gratefully and gracefully submits to the procedure. But he's got to communicate this to everybody in his household. It's not just for him, it's for Ishmael. It's not just for him and Ishmael, it's for everybody in his household. And the last time we saw Abraham and his household, they were fighting the kings and there were 318 mighty men. And you can just hear them say, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Abram, Abraham is going to have to be an exponent of the gospel to his household. It's going to take faith on his part to deal with these men. And we as parents think we're having problem with our children. It is a sign for all generations. But it's a sign of faith. First and foremost, it's a sign of Abram's faith. But Abram, the New Testament tells us, had faith before circumcision. And so what God ultimately, as we'll see in a few moments, is really after is a circumcision of the heart. Now, if we were to stop the chapter right here, it would be amazing enough. But God doesn't stop there. Now, verse 15, God says to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her, I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abram, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90, is 90 years old, bear a son? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. 
But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Now, Sarah is not left out of the equation. There's a blessing and a name change for Sarah. Now, what's Abraham's reaction here? Well, two things. We do get a verbal response, but again, he's falling on the floor. But he's also laughing. Imagine a 99-year-old man, R-O-L-F, rolling on the floor laughing. You get that, right? (laughs) If that were to happen today, we would call the paramedics. But he's got joy in the presence of a holy God. God has put Abraham totally at ease. That's what grace can do. Yes, the appropriate response to a holy God is prostrate worship. But God doesn't leave us there. And He gives us joy and hope and peace in believing. Now, it still appears there's some degree of incredulity mixed in. He doesn't quite... Does this this really happen? Abraham says. Abraham knows very well, as the New Testament puts it, that he is as good as dead as far as having children. And Sarah too. As Buck Owens used to sing... I have to get my country music uh, reference in. Abe is too old to cut the mustard anymore. But Abraham, and so Abraham comes to God and says, wait a minute, can't you bless the child I already have? For these last 13 years, I've invested in him. I've pinned my hopes on him. I have my plans for him. No, Abe. Not Ishmael. I have my plans. I'm using Sarah and you in a way that will be undeniably grace. But don't worry about Ishmael. I've got blessings for him too. He's going to receive the sign of the circumcision. He's going to have blessings just from hanging around. God is often gracious with the consequences of our sin. I think we can all testify to that. But the covenant is not Ishmael's. It's going to be Isaac's. And there will come a point where God will say to Abram in chapter 22, take Isaac, your son, your only son, and sacrifice him. So, What does this have to do for us? And what are the practical applications? Where does this leave us? Abraham's had his ups and downs. God has been promising Abraham an innumerable multitude for 25 years, and Abram's had to wait. Not an unusual test of faith is waiting. And waiting, having to wait, comes with its temptations. For singles wanting to marry, there is a temptation for marrying outside the faith. 
for couples wanting children. Well, we see where that led Abraham. For salvation of loved ones or children, there's a temptation to manipulation when we don't see God working. For money or other provision, there's a temptation to greed, to cheat, and to dishonesty in any number of ways. But having begun by faith, how is Abraham and how are we to live? By works or by faith? The real children of Abram are those whose hearts are circumcised. Physical circumcision, the sign of the covenant, ended up becoming a sign of works, a sign of entitlement. When the Pharisees protested in John 6 that they were the children of Abraham, Jesus replied that God could turn rocks into children of Abraham. God has a way, though, of turning people who were not His people into His holy nation. Romans 4 says that Abraham is the father of those not merely circumcised, but those who walk in the footsteps of faith that Abraham before he was circumcised. And Moses, in his farewell address to the people of Israel, those who've been set apart through the sign of circumcision, says, the Lord your God will circumcise our heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and that you may live. You see, when Abraham had blown it, even when he had become content with his mess, God demonstrated his grace and he graciously extended the terms of the covenant. God's purpose would not be thwarted by Abraham's sin. It will not be thwarted by our sin. We're going to see with Jacob and with Joseph's brothers and others that God even uses our sins for his ends. But let us be clear here that in coming to Abraham, God is not giving him a second chance. If I hear this term again, God is a God of a second chance, I'm going to scream. He is not a God of a second chance. He is a God of grace. And we need grace because if we get a second chance, guess what? We're going to blow that too. And then we're going to need a third chance. Let us be clear, there are no chances with God. God takes no chances. He takes His people and He calls them from the beginning. And He preserves us and no one can snatch us out of His hand. No amount of sola bootstrappa is going to work here. God is going to work through Abraham and Sarah to preserve the Savior's lineage. We need grace. Grace that gives us a freedom to obey God. And Abraham's tests are not over. His faith is still growing. 
God is going to take him through greater challenges. And yours too. God gives you the grace for the living of each day. The testimony about Abraham in the New Testament and this whole episode comes from Romans chapter 4. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become a father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he, was, when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or, he cons- or when he considered the barrenness of, Ab- of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And so if we are God's children, God will take us through whatever he has called us to do. Even if we have become inured to our comfortable suburb life, God will challenge you. Will we waver or will we trust? God give us grace for the living of these days and faith for the things he will take us through. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these days. We thank you for Abraham. We thank you for the example of his faith. Oh Lord God, give us grace. Give us grace for the living of these days that we might see you at work. That you might work through us notwithstanding who we are, who we've become, but even that you might use who we are and who we've become. In Jesus' name, amen.